All right, Exodus chapter 13. We didn't quite get out the backside of the 13th chapter there. We left off around verse 16. And just by way of reminder where we're at at this point, the Lord has now brought about the deliverance of the children of Israel uh, out of Egypt and under the bondage of the dictatorship and the tyranny of Pharaoh who had been ruling over them and subjecting them to uh, hard labor and, and slavery. And really, in a sense, much of this being picturesque and portraying God's work in our lives uh, in the role of spiritual salvation, they were delivered, really, you could say, by uh, two things, uh, certainly delivered by the Lord, but they were delivered by the shed blood of an innocent lamb, and they were delivered by their uh, faith and belief that led to an obedient response to the promise of God or to the word of God in the same way that you and I, by the innocent shed blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and by our faith and belief, an obedient response to the Word of God, we experience in the same way God's salvation and deliverance from our lives. So at this point, we pick up uh, where those events have just transpired, and now God is wanting to move them further, move them on. The, the, the deliverance, in a sense, the initial deliverance has taken place, and now God is wanting to ultimately guide them, as we know, into the promised land. But verse 17 tells us, as we pick up, then it came to pass that when Pharaoh had let the people go, finally, that is, notice that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, the idea is that was the closest route, or that would have been the shortest uh, circuit to take on their way up into the land of Canaan where God wanted to bring them. Although that was near, for God said, and here's the reason why, God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. Now, take notice, a couple things we see here. Uh, about the Lord's work in our lives. Uh, the Lord delivers us, the Lord saves us, the Lord rescues us, redeems us, does all those things he, he did for the children of Israel practically and historically there in the same way in our lives spiritually for the ultimate intention that the cruel dictatorship and tyranny that Pharaoh had over their lives ruling over them and controlling them and subjecting them to his will and wishes that that would then transfer over that they might then be governed by God, that they might be led by God, and that the Lord may be the one to direct their paths. In the same way, you know, Jesus saves me from my sin, and he delivers me from out under the uh, control and the snare of the devil that's been ruling over my life. And not that I might be self-willed, or that I might continue to be led by the whims of my flesh and my desires, but that I might ultimately respond to the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he would be the one to lead me, that it would be a life that's not just, in a sense, experiencing, hey, I have the security of fire insurance from hell's destiny, but no more than that, my life is turned over to God, and I'm someone now who wants to be led by God. I want to be guided by God, and, and I want to experience the lordship of Jesus Christ beyond just the salvation of Jesus Christ. So here we see God now, it says, leading them. And we take note a couple things about the way in which God led them. It tells us in verse 17 and 18 that God, notice, did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. Now, what that's a reference to would kind of be uh, up along the coastline, if you're familiar with the kind of a map of Egypt and where modern day Israel is, that would have been really the quickest route to come out of Egypt along sort of the, the northern border, and to just come up along the coastline, the area which would today be kind of like the area of Gaza uh, in Israel, when that's where the Philistines, they were a coastal people, they had settled in there, and that would have been the quickest route. In fact, uh, historians say probably on foot it should have been somewhere maybe about just a 10 or 11 day journey to get from Egypt to the land of Canaan. Now, obviously we know that because of their ultimate unbelief and disobedience, which we'll see in further chapters, uh, what was supposed to be just a 10 or 11 day journey actually ended up turning into like a 40 year journey of wandering in the wilderness because of their unbelief and disobedience. And you know, let me just say as a sidelight, not that I should be expounding on something we're not even at yet, but yes, there is a, a wilderness experience that we all experience in our Christian life. Jesus himself went into the wilderness 
for a season of time before his public ministry was tested by the devil. But God doesn't necessarily intend or desire for that wilderness wandering experience to be any longer than it necessarily has to. Yeah, he wants to cultivate character, develop in us the things he wants to, uh, but the Lord ultimately wants us to experience the fullness of a life in the Spirit and everything he intends for us. And sadly, we're the ones many times that prolong that because of our unbelief or our lack of faith or our disobedience. We're just kind of being self-willed rather than embracing all God has for us and letting him direct and guide us. But interesting, God does not lead them the way that you would typically travel. And it says, though that was the way that was near, the idea was the shortest route, it was the quickest, easiest route. The reason was that God said, lest perhaps the people would change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So the concern was that the threat of the uh, Philistines, as well as we know the Egyptians had military posts along the territory of where the Philistines were, and God's concern was that if they went that way, though it was the shortest and easiest route, that if there was any threat of war, again, the children of Israel, uh, they were basically a band of slaves at this time, so they didn't have weaponry and they weren't trained for warfare, and God was concerned that they could easily get discouraged that they could easily become intimidated, and if they were easily discouraged or intimidated, that they would shrink back and change their minds and just run right back to Egypt and go back into the old life. And so God, in his graciousness, it says, led them around by the way of the wilderness. So they actually kind of take a southeastern route and go the opposite direction and take this longer circuitous route. And the reason why is because God was trying to safeguard them because he knew what his people were able to handle and he knew what they wouldn't be able to handle. This reminds me of what Jesus said to his disciples on that last evening when he was talking to them. Remember John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and then we have Jesus' prayer in chapter 17. But in the midst of all those incredible things that Jesus is saying, he says, I have much more to say to you, but it's more than you can now bear. And I almost appreciate that about the Lord, that just like a parent with a child, he understands, you know, depending upon where we're at, our age, our maturity, just where we're at in our life, he knows what we can handle and what we can't handle. And he actually works in our life and leads and directs and guides us in such a way so that we're not overwhelmed. Uh, he doesn't want us to fail. He desires to see us succeed. He desires to see us be able to walk in the light and what we're able to walk in for that season that we're in so he doesn't overload us uh, and here you have that very thing in a sense you almost kind of see two things first of all that the Lord directs us according to what we're prepared for and the Lord directs us really to get us into the position ultimately of what he's planned for he directs us according to what we're prepared for he knows what you're prepared for he knows what you can handle and what you can't handle. And sometimes the Lord will lead in such a way that may seem illogical or unusual and that may require maybe more patience, but sometimes it's okay to just step back and say, but you know what, maybe the Lord knows that I wouldn't be able to quite handle something like that yet and therefore in his loving graciousness like a good father and a faithful shepherd who knows his sheep, he watches over and says, I'm, I, I'm afraid that that could ultimately be a little too much and you might be crushed under the pressure or change your mind and run back and say, I just can't handle this, it's too much, and go back into something that you were in that God wanted to take you out of. Yes, he wants to get you to your destination, but the way he gets you there may be a little different than what you intended. And sometimes God doesn't always lead the way we expect, but he leads according to what we are prepared for and ultimately to position us in the right place for his plan. Because it says, verse 18, he led them to the wilderness of the Red Sea. But we all know why he ultimately is leading them, right? To the Red Sea because God has a powerful, miraculous work that he wants to do to demonstrate his glory and to teach his people the power of God and, and to teach them how to believe God and see God come to their aid and that God could do incredible things that would just strengthen their faith and would cause them to have reason to trust God's reliability in the future. And it would be something as well that would go out as a testimony because when you read throughout the Old Testament, Many times you see the enemies of the children of Israel and either other foreign peoples oftentimes always referring back to this mighty miracle of God of the parting of the Red Sea and his people passing through, saying, hey, you're God, Joshua. We know your people. Your people, you're the people who passed 
through the Red Sea when your God parted the water. So God had reasons for the way he was leading them. It was also to position them in the right place so that he could fulfill his plan. And see, sometimes, God, why are you leading like this? This Lord, this seems so illogical. Why are you directing me this way instead of this way? And, and sometimes it's because God's trying to position you to have you in the right place to fulfill his plan in the right way in the right time so that you can see the works of God and others can see the works of God and so that he can do the things that he has on his heart that maybe you're just not aware of but are much better than if you took a different route because it seemed that that one didn't line up with your own reason. Listen, we walk by faith, not by reason or by logic necessarily, and God may not always lead us by the easiest and the shortest route. We see that here. God did not lead them the easiest and shortest way he led them, it seems, the long way around. But listen, don't get discouraged if that's happening. God may not always lead you the easiest way, and he may not always lead you the quickest and the shortest way. That's okay. The most important thing is you just follow where God's leading and let God pick the path, and he'll get you to the right destination for the right reasons and the right time. So here, God leads them around. And notice as well, verse 18, it says, they went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. I like that, because when God leads... Just because we walk by faith and sometimes God takes us in unusual paths, it doesn't mean that things need to be flippant and haphazard and disorganized. God is a God of order, the Bible tells us. It says you know, in the, the New Testament, in Corinthians as well, that God is not the author of confusion. It says in regards to the ministries and operations of the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 14, it says, Let all things be done decently and in order. And God's a God of order. And God can be leading by His Spirit in unusual ways and directing by faith, and yet it can still be very orderly. It doesn't mean that God's leading has to be some chaotic thing. They went in a very orderly way, just like even when Jesus fed the 5,000. He did one of His great miracles in the New Testament. And you remember what Jesus told the disciples? Have all the people sit down in groups of 50s and 100s. He's about to feed 5,000 people, but He said, but we're going to do this in an efficient, orderly way, like good stewards. And he had the disciples break them up into groups. And the Lord is a God of order. So he leads them out now toward the Red Sea. Verse 19, it says, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, remember back from Genesis, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So, just a beautiful little illustration there of the you know, the faithfulness of someone amidst the children of Israel. It doesn't tell us exactly who, but some uh, faithful individual or a few faithful individuals remembering the the oath that was uh, you know sworn years ago. Excuse me, to Joseph that that he wanted his bones transitioned with the people of God, not to be left there in Egypt. And some faithful individual said, "Hey, we made a commitment." We made a promise. We made an oath. And, and God would have us to keep our promises. And God would have us to keep our oaths. And, and so I'm sure someone would say, He's dead. The guy won't even know, man. You're like, Who cares? It's bones. But you know what? God wants us to be a faithful people. And somebody in an area which might have seemed very insignificant to other people said, You know what? No. Whether it seems like something significant, monumental, or seems like something very simple, God wants us to be faithful in all things. And you know what? God help us. Again, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. Whether your stewardship is some big, huge, seemingly significant thing, or whether it seems like it's just something simple, you know, like folding a few bulletins, or you know, whatever, you know, this is so insignificant. You, know, you do whatever you do faithfully to the Lord. Keep your commitments. Follow through. You know, take everything, and, and Jesus says, you know, he who is faithful in least and little can be faithful in much. And just this beautiful thing, someone, some unmentioned individual or group of them here honoring this oath and promise that was made, and the Bible even records that they fulfilled this as they traveled out of the land. So they took their journey from Sukkoth, and not the same Sukkoth we would uh, know today from the New Testament, but in that day there was a place named Sukkoth, and they camped in Ethnam at the edge of the wilderness, and notice verse 21, the Lord went before them, so the presence of God now was manifest in their midst, God is leading them, 
But notice, he doesn't just say, here's the map, go that way, and uh, call me when you get there. You know, kind of how, how we do that. You know, you, you, you know, I have a daughter driving now, and you know, parents and my, my parents say, well, call me when you get there. So I know when you get there, okay, you have my permission to go, call me when you get there. And of course, half the time that never happens. But, but, <laughs> but nonetheless, I appreciate that when the Lord says, look, here's where I want you to go, and he gives us direction. He doesn't just lead us. He actually leads us. You understand what I'm saying? He doesn't just say, look, here's my leading. Go there and let me know when you get there. He says, we are going there. And he actually goes with us. He goes before us. He gives us direction and he also directs and guides us by his presence going with us. The Lord went before them. And notice how he manifested his presence in that day to Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness Here's the first mention of this. He went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So the whole time through this wilderness journey, God's manifest presence was with them in this form, the Bible tells us, of a, of, of a cloudy pillar, a pillar of cloud during the daytime to provide leading for them, which again, keep in mind, where are they traveling? Through, through a Mideastern desert climate. Now, I've been over in the Mideast once now so far. Any of you who've been there before know yourself firsthand, or if you just see anything of, of pictures, they're in a desert climate, hot sun. Well, when you're in a desert climate, there is nothing more wonderful if you're traveling through a desert area for a long time than to have what? Some shade. So here God in his graciousness during the day, he's giving them shade. He's protecting them to sort of minimize the difficulty of the journey and providing in a sense a shield for them as he guides them and leads them in his graciousness and his kindness. And I'm thankful that the Lord does that. that how many times we probably don't even recognize that the Lord is probably shielding us from the severity of of what it really could be. Thinking, oh, this is really hard. This is really hot and difficult. And, and he says, if you had any idea that, that I got about like 90 SPF sunscreen, you know, blocking how hot and hard this really could be, if I wasn't shielding some of it and deflecting a lot of the pressure off of you with, you know, with my loving hand as I'm guiding you, also shielding us at the same time, because he's gracious to us. So he's the pillar of cloud kept them cool during the day so they weren't overwhelmed and their children and flocks and little ones. And at night, it says there was a pillar of fire to give them light. So again, at nighttime, somehow it transitioned and it became then a pillar of fire, God's manifest presence. One, so that they could see where they were going in the dark. And of course, Jesus says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but have the light of light. And here God's giving them light so they don't have to journey in the dark and get lost. They can see where they're going. God's giving them light. But also, in a desert area, typically what happens? It's scorching hot during the day, and then what happens in the evenings? It becomes very, very cold. So here God has a, a source of heat, in a sense, to keep them warm, uh, as well as guided to see where they're going by becoming a pillar of fire at night as they travel through. So just beautiful. Whatever they needed, God became. Ultimately, God would bring water from a rock for them. And that Bible ultimately says that rock was Christ. And as, as they journeyed, God became for them what they needed as his presence was with them. And you know what? Whatever journey God sends you on and whoever God leads you and directs you, you know what? Really, you just have one simple responsibility. I have one simple role, and that's very simply this is just to keep my eye on the Lord, and wherever God goes, we'll go the same direction. That was all they had to do. The Bible will tell us later on, when the pillar of cloud or fire moved, the children of Israel moved. And when it stood still, they stood still and they didn't move. They had one responsibility. When God moves, we move. When God stays still, we just stay still and don't do anything. Sometimes God may have moved often and frequently, and they had to... Be open and, and move with the Lord. And sometimes God will settle in. Uh, and when's he going to move again? I don't know. But as long as that pillar of cloud is right there, we are not supposed to move. Because if not, then we're moving without God. We don't ever want to move without God. We only want to go where God's going. Uh, 
and they would just follow where the Lord was leading as he was going before them, taking them through the wilderness. Well, verse 14 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they turn. So now God makes a turn, and they kind of take a, almost looks like they're doubling back, we'll see. They turn and camp before Pi-Heroth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon. And you shall camp before it, but notice where God's bringing them to, right before the sea. Now, historians try and take stabs at. No one really knows exactly geographically where those locations are. They were ancient locations. We're not certain exactly what those names connect you today. What we can see is that God has now positioned them there by the sea. That is, they have the Red Sea in front of them. And he's doing this purposely. In a sense, it's almost like God's leading them into a trap. I mean, you really can be honest to say that, in essence, God's putting them in a setup. He's got the Red Sea in front of them. There's basically a desert to one side of them. There's a mountain range to the other side of them. And they're going to have the Egyptians breathing down their necks right behind them wanting to come after them. And this is all a setup. God's put it that way. God's created the impossible situation what looks like the overwhelming circumstance is like Jesus who sent the disciples out into the Sea of Galilee and he sent them what? In essence, right into a storm. Wasn't that Jesus accidentally overlooked the weather forecast or they like today, you know, they predicted something and well, they said there wasn't gonna be a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Sorry about that, boys. No, he knows. And sometimes he will lead us right into a situation where whether it's north, south, east, or west, no option is a good option and we're boxed in and it looks like, look, if we go that way, that we're never going to survive that across the desert, a journey with two million people and our flocks and children. We ain't going to make it across that mountain range. If we turn around, the Egyptians are going to slaughter us. And how are we going to, we're going to swim across the sea? That's not going to work. We don't have an option. We do have an option. The option is just to wait and see what God does. And that's what God's going to show. When you're in that spot... That's the time where God wants to do something incredible that maybe he's never done before. Verse 3, notice, God tells Moses, verse 3, For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness, notice, has closed them in. So God knows exactly what was going to happen and what Pharaoh would say. I like that. God knows exactly what other people are saying, their evaluation of something. God says, I know exactly what Pharaoh's going to say. Pharaoh's going to say, these people must have lost their mind. They don't know how to navigate in the wilderness. These dumb Egyptian or dumb Israelite slaves, uh, they've closed themselves in. They've boxed themselves in a corner. How naive, how foolish of them. Verse 4, God says, and then I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Remember, Pharaoh's heart has already been hardened by himself. God says, and I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And again, why? Because Pharaoh ultimately was never sincerely repentant, and this is going to now give an opportunity to flush out and reveal the real heart condition of Pharaoh. Sometimes God will put us in a situation that may be difficult for us, but it's also an opportunity for God to divinely reveal the true condition of someone else that maybe was saying, oh, yeah, okay, go ahead, you can go, when the reality is, is that was totally insincere, because God knew that he would do exactly what he's going to do, that he was going to pursue them once they were boxed in. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh, God says, and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against his people. And they said, why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from serving us. The idea is, what did we do we just let go of our whole slave labor. Our economy is going to tank. We've let go of millions of people from our labor force. This is going to crush our economy. What were we thinking? Why did we let the Israelites go? Verse 6, So he made ready his chariot, and he took his people with him, and also he took 600 choice chariots, and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. So he musters his whole military force together. Now again, keep in mind, a chariot in that day in ancient warfare was like the equivalency of like a tank today. This is like bringing out the hard 
you know, the, the, the heavy artillery in warfare, a, a chariot uh, you know, with steeds or horses in front of it, uh, you know, could easily take on multitudes of men who were on foot as foot soldiers. So this is like bringing out the heavy artillery, the tanks, 600 choice chariots. He musters his army forces, a very threatening, overwhelming thing. Now they're going to pursue the Israelites there where they're at. And the Lord, verse 8, hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, and all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and army, overtook them, camping by side Pi-Haroth before Baal Zephon. So here now, in hot pursuit, Pharaoh, all his forces of the Egyptians, they're now pursuing the children of Israel. And what do they want to do? They want to draw them back into Egypt. Now, isn't that a very fitting picture? Because I tell you this, when you choose to come to Jesus Christ and you surrender your life to the Lord, you're forgiven your sins, and you say, that's it, I'm all in, I'm going to live for Jesus, I guarantee you, not only at the very beginning does it happen, but consistently then, throughout your journey and walk with the Lord, that the wicked king, the ungodly king of evil, Satan, just like Pharaoh himself, who represents Egypt, the world, is going to continuously do the same thing. He's going to pursue you and say, what am I doing? Why did I let Kevin go? I, I liked when I had him serving my purposes and, and I had him you know, captive doing my will rather than God's will. I got to go get him. And he'll pursue you and he'll pursue me and will use whatever he needs and his forces and his demonic cronies together with him to try and do whatever he can to intimidate us, to overwhelm us, because he wants to draw us back in to a life of bondage and slavery. It's to bring us back into Egypt, into the world system we were once in. So listen, that's why you got to put on the armor of God. And you need to realize that the devil ain't going to give up just because he lets you go. He's going to keep doing whatever he can to sabotage your Christian walk and try and draw you back into Egypt, bring you back into the world. And you've got to put on the armor of God and you've got to stand against that spiritual warfare. Like Peter said we were Sunday mornings a few weeks ago, abstain from fleshly lusts that are going to war against your soul. And, and recognize when the world's trying to draw you back in, like Romans chapter 12, you know, not being conformed to the pattern of this world. But let God keep transforming your mind pursuing and knowing what the good and perfect will of God is, and don't let Egypt draw you back into its environment. So now they've pursued them, and verse 9 says that they come up and they're camping right behind them there on the sea. And when Pharaoh drew near, verse 10, the children of Israel lifted their eyes. And again, you have to put yourself into this story because they don't know the end of it, right? We know the end of the story. Oh, it's exciting. I know it's going to happen, and... We watched the movie. They haven't watched the movie. It hasn't been done yet. This is real for them. This is a reality where they turn around now with the, this world empire, this intimidating military force that has the ability to, to, to you know, mercilessly just overtake them and viciously just destroy them, put them to death, harm their women and children. And it says, they lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And verse 10 says, they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, that's a good thing to do. When you're very afraid, when you're closed in, when you are terrified and you realize I, there is no human option here. There is no way to get out of this. This looks like an absolute catastrophe I don't know what to do, where to turn. That's a good time when you're very afraid to just cry out to the Lord. I think God wants that. There's a wonderful thing in that because that's saying, Lord, deliver me. My eyes are on you. you know, like the writer says later on in the Old Testament, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And they cried out to the Lord, Lord, save us, deliver us. Verse 11 now, this is what's interesting. And then they said to Moses, I have that circle. They cried out to the Lord. They prayed. They cried out to the Lord. But very quickly afterwards, then they turned to Moses, their human leader, and they say to him, 
because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt so with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may just serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians that we should die in the wilderness. Now, isn't that just like us? You know, we start out praying and crying out to the Lord, uh, and then very quickly we regress into unbelief, and we start complaining and then deflecting our concerns and, and, and pushing blame somewhere else. Uh, and, and it very quickly they turn to Moses, this is your fault. And so if everything happens, we should have, we should have never listened to you. If we would have just stood where we were, yeah, it wasn't the best circumstances, but at least it's better than what's about to happen. And now we should have just stood there rather than follow you out here and die in the midst. So right away they just... You know, start you know laying into Moses and 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 pouring out their complaints to him instead of just again crying out to the Lord and keeping their eyes on the Lord. It's just like Peter. Remember, he walks on water when he's got his eyes on the Lord, and as soon as it says he took his eyes off the Lord and started looking at the circumstances again, what happened? Boop, 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 he started sinking. And that's just like us. They started out in faith, and they had lots of reason, didn't they? All the things they've seen God do so far. All you know, the miraculous works God did through Moses, and then all the plagues, and how God spared them in the midst of the plagues, and then how God spared them with the deliverance of the firstborn. Certainly, they had plenty of plenty of reason to trust God, but yet their heart fell into the place of unbelief. And just like us, man, God has proved Himself so powerful, who He is. But so often, our hearts you know regress into unbelief, and when we do that. That's when we start questioning and complaining and getting ourselves into a place that's not good here in that kind of evil heart of unbelief that we can fall into. Well, verse 13, notice Moses responds and said to the people, Do not be afraid. How many times do we hear God say that in this word? Do not be afraid. Do not fear. We, we see that repeatedly, God saying that here through his servant, God says to the people, do not be afraid. Secondly, verse 13, stand still. Now that's extremely hard to do when you're in a tough spot, right? Because when you're in a pressure cooker, you either want to do a couple things. Either you want to run, run for your life somehow and flee, or you want to fight and just put on the gloves and or, or, or you know, whether it's to fight your way out of it or to put on your work gloves and to work your way out of it. So I'm just going to do this and do that and I'll just work extra hard. And, and so whether it's running from a situation or whether it's fighting the situation or whether it's putting on your work gloves and trying to work it out your own self and fix the situation, the hardest thing in the world in those times is to, by faith, stand still. Yet the Bible tells us what in, in the psalmist, Psalm 46, be still and know that I'm God. And sometimes faith calls us to just stand still. Why? To give God a chance to be God. To give God a chance to show who he is and what he wants to do and to protect us from beginning to do things in the flesh. So God says, don't be afraid. Stop fearing. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Again, God doesn't want us to provide our own salvation. See the salvation of the Lord. You could say the same thing is true in regards to our eternal salvation. God says, look, you know you're a sinner. Your heart is gripped. You're terrified now. You know you, know, you, know you deserve help. God says, stand still. I don't want you to try and clean up your eye. I don't want you to fix yourself. I want you to stand still knowing you are a, a sinner that deserves the damnation of hell's torment. And I want you to see the salvation of the Lord. I want you by faith to look to Jesus and to realize I can't save myself through my works. I need to see the salvation of the Lord and let him save me. And whether it's in coming to Christ, whether it's our circumstances, see the salvation of the Lord, which, notice, he will accomplish for you. And he accomplished it for them today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. Now, can you imagine them trying to accept that? That was That's a really powerful statement. Don't be afraid. Stand still. 
You're going to see the salvation of the Lord, which will accomplish for you today. And he says, these Egyptians, as of today, they're going to be gone. God says, I'm going to deal with them. And, you know, I don't know what you're facing tonight or what you may be facing next week or next month, but you know what? The Bible says we serve a God who changes not. He loves you just as much as the children of Israel. He loves our congregation just as much as he did the congregation of Israel. He loves your family. He loves you individually. And sometimes God may have you in a spot where you feel closed in. And the word of the Lord may be to you, look, don't be afraid. I know what it looks like. Don't be afraid. Stand still and wait and watch and see the salvation of the Lord that he will accomplish for you. Verse 14, how wonderful this must have sounded. For the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. The Lord says, listen, let me go to battle for you. Let me fight your battles for you. I found that if I want to fight my own battles, the Lord will let me. <laughs> I usually don't do a very good job. I usually might get two or three swings in and then I end up making a mess or just getting knocked out and falling down on the mat myself. But the Lord says, if you let me defend you, let me fight your battles for you, I'll do a much more efficient job. You hold your peace, and you won't even look like the bad guy at the end. That's the nice way. So, shh, shh, shh. You just sit there. You sit there, hold your peace, and let me take care of that for you. You know, he's the Lord is much better to wrestle someone into submission or to deal with someone or like David. You know, David would say, Lord, bust their teeth out. Of course, David was related to Rocky in the bloodline or something, you know, just David get angry. Lord, deal with them, break their teeth. And I just, you know, the Lord will fight our battles for us if we let him have the chance to work. Verse 15, and the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel, go forward. Now, interesting. Moses speaks this word of faith, but here it goes to show you he's a man who has feet of clay. He's a human being like everybody else. He must have turned around after he professed this really encouraging word of the Lord. You know, hey, don't be afraid. Stand still. We'll see the salvation of the Lord that he's going to accomplish for you today. The Lord will fight for you. But then he probably walked away and you went maybe, I don't know, walked away for a minute or went back to his tent and he said, Goodness, Lord, what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? And he starts crying out to the Lord and, and, and praying himself. And the Lord says to him, Moses, what are you doing? Why, why are you crying to me? He says, look, I've heard your prayers when you cried to me the first time. I gave you my word. He says, so now it's time to go forward. Tell the children of Israel, go forward. And you know what? Listen, there is a time to pray. And I don't think we should ever be presumptuous. I don't think we should jump forward and say, hey, well, we're going to do this. God, how about you come along and bless it? I think that we should wait to watch the cloud of the Lord move and, and wherever he goes, go. And that we should be patient and wait and let God lead and us follow. And, and, and to, to wait and seek the Lord for direction and clarity, that's vital, that's important. But there comes a time where there's a time to pray, and then there also comes a time where it's not the right thing to pray. It's a time to move. It's a time to act. It's a time to go forward. And once God has been very clear, and it is very evident, and he has given his direction, and he is about to act, for us to then say, well, you know what? Well, I'm, 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 gonna, I'm just going to pray about that. I'm, I'm going to keep praying about that. In a sense, God says, look, there's nothing else to pray about. The Bible tells us in Micah chapter 6, He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And there comes a time where the Lord says, Look, I don't have to show you. I've already shown you. There comes a time where, in a sense, I'll go so far as to say, that prayer or saying we're going to keep praying can almost begin to be a form of disobedience to the will of God because God is saying, listen, I've already clearly shown you and now it's time to step forward in faith. And sometimes that's the place where we come to. And here, this was the case. He says, Moses, I've spoken to you. There's clarity. I've answered your prayer. Why do you keep crying to me? Tell the children of Israel, go forward. Lift up your rod, verse 16. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And Moses thinking, oh, Divide the sea? I've never divided a sea. 
Nobody's ever divided this. I mean, you understand how ludicrous this sounds? But sometimes when God leads in faith, he gives commands to do things that sound really ludicrous. Really ludicrous. Sometimes God will tell us to do things that defy reason, that don't seem responsible, that, that, that really just seem to, to be off the wall because maybe nobody's ever even done it before. Nobody's ever done such a thing like this before. Moses, tell them to go forward. Tell them to, The idea literally is you tell them to start marching toward the water and then you lift up your rod and, and, and part the water by faith and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. So God was going to make a way there where there had never been a way before. God was going to do something that had never been done before. By simple faith, trusting that God wanted to do something that God had clearly shown. Now listen, again, let me come back to this. I don't think you should presumptuously, if you are not certain that you have heard the word of the Lord and he hasn't said today, go out and say, hey, well, I know God's never done this before, but you know, and, and, and just trust God to part a sea for you because if God don't want to part the sea, all you're going to do is you know, fall apart and look foolish and be utterly disappointed and ashamed if you try and step into something God's not leading you to do. But if God has clearly spoken, you are certain of that, and God has said, now is time to go forward, then you know what? There comes a point where you've got to be willing to step forward in faith. And as you step forward in faith, it activates the power and the working of God where God honors that, and then God does what God says he's going to do. And here, they were to start moving forward, and Moses was going to be used by God as an instrument to part the sea, and they would go through, notice, on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Not only would God part the sea, but they'd actually go through on dry ground. If you've ever walked you know, in the, in the ocean or whatever under the water, the ground is not dry and hard under the ocean, right? It's muddy and sloppy, and, and you'd, you'd be sinking in it and, all, and everything else. But God is actually going to make the ground firm. Even. I mean, the, the uh, you know, immensity of the miracle, when you really start to think about it, is incredibly impressive in, in what it would require and how many people pass through the Red Sea. I mean, it's just a phenomenal thing that God was ultimately doing. Verse 17, And I will indeed harden the hearts of the Egyptians. They shall follow them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and his army, his chariots and horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of God, again, which reminds us here that what this cloud was that we just talked about. Now we hear reference the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel. God now moves and went behind them and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So look what God does. God now becomes what? Their rear guard. God leads them and his presence is going before them but now God comes around where they need protection and he becomes their rear guard because their enemies are pursuing them and about to have access to them and harm them. And I love this. Verse 20, it says, So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one and gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all night. So God comes around behind now because what does he do? God becomes whatever we need. He's God. He's the great I am. He's the all-becoming one. Whatever you need, do you need provision? God becomes your provision. Do you need protection? God becomes your protection. And he now comes behind them, and it says, at night for the Israelites, he's a pillar, it says, of, of fire to give light to them. So on one side, one side, God is giving light to the children of Israel. On the other side, it's absolute pitch darkness. And they can't see anything, so that they, they, they have no ability to have access and to get to the children of Israel. And God puts himself between his people and their enemies. And I love this because for them to be able to get to God's people, they would have to go through God first. And that was going to be utterly unsuccessful. And you know what? For you and I, God is our protector. He is our shield, the Bible says. And and for anyone to get to you, for anyone to to do anything to you, they have to go through God first. Listen, nobody's going to overcome God. God is our protection. And how wonderful to know that God is not only the presence of God with us, but he is our protection as well and can come to our guard. He can keep us safe and protect us 
no matter how scary or threatening or intimidating something or someone else may be. God can be our protection and keep us safe. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. I would love to know what he was thinking in his heart. I'm sure the gift of faith was at work here, and that's where it came from, just like Peter when he walked up in Acts chapter 3 to the, uh, you know, the, the beggar there at the temple, and he said, hey, give me alms. And Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he said, rise up and walk. And then Peter reached down and grabbed him by the hand and lifted him up. And again, you, know, you have to wonder again, was Peter thinking, oh my goodness, what if I lift him up and he falls? You know, I mean, how, can you imagine lifting a crippled person up and you lift them up out of their chair and then they fell back down? I mean, how utterly humiliating and cruel that would seem. But he was acting in, in the gift of faith. God gave him the faith to do it, and therefore he acted in it. And when God gives the gift of faith to do something, you can do something supernatural and miraculous by the power of God sometimes if God is the one giving you the faith and directing you to do it. So Moses here does exactly what God says. He stretches out his hand, and it says, The Lord, notice, it wasn't Moses. All Moses was doing was believing. He was just believing by faith, obeying by faith, and the Lord was the one doing everything. It's all not by might or by power, but by his spirit that things happen. It's God who does it. The Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel, says, went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground and the waters were a wall. To them on their right hand and on their left. So again, you can just imagine the miracle. The waters were a wall. I mean, and and how high? I mean, I envision in my mind. You imagine walking through this, and here's this wall of water on both sides. I mean, you see, you know, aquatic life go by. I mean, it's like being in the Baltimore Aquarium here. You know, you ever been in there? And you got the animals swimming around you, and here they are walking through. And they're experiencing the miracle of God. And, and, and they're right in the midst of, of experiencing what God is doing as they go through by faith. And again, Hebrews 11.29 says this. Listen to this verse. It says, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Why were they able to do what they did? It says, By faith. By faith they passed through the Red Sea. Because listen, even though that sea parted, I mean, I want you to picture going down to the beach here, and we're not, you know, too far away from a, a, a beach area, and picture just, you know, again, the ocean just parting in the depths of the, the height of walls of water. Now, that would be pretty miraculous and impressive to see. What do you Whoa! But what kind of faith would it require to then just go take your little children and everything and just start walking through that and trusting that it's going to stay like that and it's not going to... It's bad enough getting hit by a heavy wave that's pretty big. Imagine walking out into the depths of a sea. That took faith. So it takes faith to step into the will of God. But it also takes faith to keep walking forward and staying in the will of God. It's one thing to step out in faith. But then you also got to continue to keep walking by faith. And this is what it does. It says that was by faith they passed through, the Egyptians not having faith. As the result, they experienced the being drowned in the process. Verse 23 says, The Egyptians pursued, went after them in the midst of the sea, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen. And it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. I love God's sense of humor. Verse 25, And he took off their chariot wheels. All their wheels are falling off, their axles are all getting stuck in the mud. You know, you've seen somebody try and drive a car with you know, the wheels falling off. And they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, hey, let us flee from the face of Israel. They recognized, look what they noticed, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So the, the Egyptians realized, hey, there's, there's something about what's happening here, and it seems like God's with these people. And they, they sense the presence and the power of God being at work in their midst. The Lord fights for them. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians and on their chariots and their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, 
when the morning appeared and the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea and then the waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw, verse 31, the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So again, God works in their midst in such a way by his power that it says that they saw the great work which the Lord had done. I love this psalmist, he says in Psalm 118, when he says, the Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. And you know what? i tell you something. Maybe it's the wrong word to say. I don't want to say God's a show-off. But I do believe that God wants to show His power, His glory, who He is, and to work in ways where no flesh can get the glory and to work in ways whereby people see and marvel the great works that God can do. And whether it's in our lives personally whether it's something with a family situation, whether it's something with us as a church or the people of God, I think the Lord wants to work in ways whereby we see the great work that the Lord does and that causes, notice the reaction, it says that people had a, a reverence, a fear of the Lord, and they believed the Lord. That's the Lord wants. The Lord wants to work and do great works that we see and know it's Him, and that as a result of it, it causes us then as the people of God to have a healthy reverence and respect for God and also to say, man, that really causes me to want to believe who God is and to trust God for the next experience. To believe that if God can do that, why would I doubt God for anything else? Because see, this was just one incident where God was solidifying His power and strengthening their faith because, listen, there would be plenty of other occurrences on the way where they would have to trust the Lord. You know, sometimes God will let you go through something to show you his power, to, to humble you and to make you realize who you are in your humanity, but also to help you to have the reality and the realization solidified in your heart of, wow, I serve a miracle-working, powerful God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Like Jeremiah said, ah, oh, Lord God, there is nothing too hard for you. And when you see God do stuff like that, it causes you to come to that place. Listen, God can make a way where there's never been a way before. Just because you can't see the way or no one has ever gone that way before, don't ever doubt that it means that God can't do that. Because God can do something that's never been done before. That's what makes him God. Right? That's what makes him God. 